What's up, my Impact Theory family? It's Tom Bilyeu, and I want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude to you guys, our incredible listeners. Your support, your feedback, your unwavering commitment to your own growth inspires and drives us every day. And I want you guys to know how important you are to all of us here, especially me. And for those voracious listeners, you know who you are, I've got something really exciting to share with you. If you're truly dedicated to achieving greatness, check out the Extra Impact subscription channel exclusively on Apple Podcasts and Supercast. With the Extra Impact subscription, you'll get all new episodes delivered ad-free, exclusive access to bonus content, including keynote speeches, AMAs, weekly motivation, and previously unreleased episodes. And you'll also have subscriber-only access to five additional podcast playlists with hundreds of archived Impact Theory episodes curated into themes to help you streamline your transformation journey. So if you're ready to take your personal growth journey to the next level, head over to Apple Podcasts, Supercast, or check the links in the show notes and subscribe to the Extra Impact subscription. It's your key to unlocking the greatness within you. Thank you guys again so much for being a part of this incredible community. Remember, the world needs more people that have come alive, double down on your own improvement, and you will be shocked at how far you can go. All right, until next time, my friends, be legendary. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Today's guest is Ryan Holiday, best-selling author and the man most responsible for introducing the modern world to Stoic philosophy, arguably the most useful philosophy for anyone trying to gain control of their mind. If you want to win at the game of life, the most important thing you can realize is that the quality of your life won't be determined by what happens to you. It will be determined by how you respond what happens to you. And that's what Stoic philosophy is all about. In part one of this two-part episode, we answer the question of whose ideas are going to see you through the hardest times. Modern influencers like Andrew Tate or influencers of old like Marcus Aurelius, who's considered the last of the good emperors of Rome. We also dove into the OnlyFans phenomenon, the optimal code for living your life, and what to make of the rise of both the red and black pill movements. You guys will not want to miss this episode or any of our future episodes, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and now I bring you Ryan Holiday. My heart absolutely aches for all the people out there that feel lost and inadequate. People try to look good on Instagram, but they don't really worry about who they actually are. I want to compare and contrast two people. Okay. Uh, one being Andrew Tate, for many people considered the pinnacle of modern masculinity. The other being Marcus Aurelius, known as the last of the five great emperors of Rome. Who should people be looking up to? And most important, why? I think it's hard to be a man in the world these days where 
as we have corrected, you know, mistakes of the past, some of the things that sort of would have been reassuring or purposeful or even just mooring, like tie you to who you are and why you're here for men has gone away, right? Less people go to church than ever before. Less people work at the same job their whole life than ever before. You know, all these things that would explain who you were, how you should be, why you mattered, those have fallen away. And so I don't, I'm not surprised by the fact that from that sort of emptiness or vacuum, people would be attracted to someone who both tells them what they want to hear and sort of sets down kind of an aspirational model where, yeah, you're good with women, you're financially successful, you seemingly emanate power and confidence. I get why all that's attractive, but I find him to be repulsive. Why? Uh, well, I mean, first off, he's a sex trafficker. And uh, what if he was proven innocent? Because I, I would love to set that aside because if he is that, and God knows some of the things I've seen make it seem like it probably, it, it's, it's dark no matter what. Right. And it may be just unbearably heinous, but I, I want to address the part that made people like yes. go to him because I think that that will break the spell. If it yes. ends up being true, I, I think he'll just disappear. Yeah. But prior to that, there was the sense of strong, could fight, very articulate, tons of money, um, seemed to be the kind of guy that people wanted to be around. So I'm using him as a stand-in yes. for hyper-masculinity or the, the modern model. Yeah, and, and I think you make a good point. Let's say perhaps he's innocent. It still doesn't change the fact that the business model from which his wealth has been derived is about uh, the sort of a modern form of prostitution or pimping, right? Like this is, I don't think this is, the, the Stoics don't have any problem with making money, right? Being financially successful. Seneca says, uh, what does it matter if the philosopher is rich insofar as that his money is not stained by blood, right? And so I think it's great to be successful to make money. I think how you made that money uh, is more important than how much you have or don't have, right? So I find I find the enterprise to be uh, repulsive. Let's let's. I just want to stipulate that. But if we're sort of contrasting some of the sort of hyper masculinity, manosphere, red pill kind of maleness with. Uh, some of the ideals in Stoicism. I think that's a fascinating contrast because there was actually a recent, maybe it was the American Psychological Institute or, or there was some medical uh, institution that was sort of laying out what they thought the primary attributes of toxic mas masculinity were. And one of them is Stoicism. Like they're laying out Stoicism as- As in non-emotional? As in unemotional, invulnerable, sort of suppressive, which I think is obviously a fundamental misreading of Stoicism. But but I do think the, con the contrast between those two things is interesting. There's like maybe what people call would call lowercase Stoicism mm. and uppercase Stoicism. I'm obviously interested in in the sort of the actual philosophy of Stoicism, the Marcus Aurelius version of Stoicism. It's interesting. You, you, you pointed him out as one of the five great emperors. 
actually the the historical term there is he's the last of the five good emperors. Interesting. Which which I think is an important distinction because he is great. I mean, you don't become the most powerful man in the world without some form of greatness there. You don't right? stay the most powerful man, but he was just appointed. So you definitely you could his son for his the son love of God was a tyrant psychopath. But what's interesting about Marcus is how he gets there, right? But pointing out that great and good are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people aspire to be great, uh, but don't really care if they're good in the process. And I think to me, what's truly impressive, what true greatness is, is both. It involves both being talented and masterful and powerful and successful, but also fundamentally decent and generous and honest and fair and uh, kind. All, all these other attributes that can sometimes get lost in a cutthroat, ambitious, real-world scenario, right? But Marcus's story is so interesting because he's more than just appointed, right? So what's so fascinating about the five good emperors is basically for five consecutive emperors, there is no male heir. I think we all agree uh, hereditary monarchy is not a great system. It doesn't tend to create good leaders. So why do you have five in a row? It's because the emperor was not simply naming his eldest son his successor. So what happens is Hadrian, who is two emperors before Marcus, is without a son. He's probably gay, you know, sort of an eccentric, interesting guy. He's a pretty good emperor. He's flawed in a lot of ways, but he's a good emperor, right? No one would say he's a great, a good man, but he was a, he was a great emperor. And he's starting to look around, who's going to succeed me? And he looks at this boy, Marcus Aurelius is, is, is pretty young then. He doesn't come, they're not related anyway, but he is from a prestigious Roman family. And there's something about this kid that strikes Hadrian. He nicknames him uh, Verismus or the truthful one. Mm -hmm. So he has some fundamental honesty or decency to him that makes Hadrian think like this kid has potential. He's smart, he's philosophically inclined quite early doesn't want to be emperor, right? Which is, I think, also a positive sign in a leader. Like mm. the leader that wants the power the most is the one you have to be the most worried about. Yeah. So Hadrian decides, hey, there's something in this kid. But he also knows that the worst thing you could possibly do is make a kid a king, mm. you know? And so he has to set in motion some training program that would make this kid a great emperor. And so he realizes he needs like a stopgap. He needs like a placeholder before Marcus is ready. And Marcus not having a male relative who could do this, Hadrian settles on this guy named Antoninus, who's the most powerful politician in Rome at that time, who's sort of worked his way up through the ranks, honest, decent, good. And Hadrian's considering maybe he's the successor. And he, the story is that he notices one day uh, Antoninus helping his stepfather, his elderly stepfather, up a flight of stairs. No one's watching. And he just sees this moment of kindness or goodness in a person who is otherwise a very talented, ambitious, powerful politician. So what Hadrian does is he names Antoninus his successor. In exchange, Antoninus has to name Marcus Aurelius his successor. And so Hadrian probably thinks Marcus will reign for, uh, that Antoninus will reign for three or four years or 10 years, right? Life expectancy there is not super long. And Antoninus ends up ruling for like two decades. 
And he and Marcus have this incredible relationship where he seems to actively be interested in teaching Marcus and modeling good behavior for Marcus. And Marcus, in turn, doesn't see this adopted stepfather as a rival in any way, as an impediment in any way, but as someone to learn from, someone to model himself on. And so for 20-odd years, Antoninus leads while preparing this kid to, to succeed him. And that's what ultimately ends up happening. And I think a testament to Antoninus's uh, tutoring and to Marcus's learning and inherent decency the first thing Marcus does when he becomes emperor is he names his stepbrother co-emperor, right? So the first thing he does with absolute power is give part of it away, mm. which is you know unprecedented in the annals of history. And so uh, all of this is to say what makes Marcus great is not just that he's a great leader, he's a great military campaigner, that he's smart, that he's good at communicating, that he knows how to broker you know, compromises, but that sort of fundamentally there is a decency there, a goodness there, a, a sense of community-mindedness in it. In meditations, he talks about the common good 40 or 50 times, right? Like what what what's in Marcus that makes Marcus, I think, a worthy model for young men and for young women is that, you know, he's not corrupted by the power that he has. He doesn't feel the need to prove anything to anyone. He has this sense, this inner code that he's trying to live by. And he wants to be great, but he, he doesn't necessarily want to do it through the, the piling up of wealth or honors or accomplishments, but by you know, making a positive difference in the world. All right. What I want to talk about is that inner code. Yes. So what I find interesting about this whole setup is... All right. So uh, I don't know a lot about Andrew Tate, but it does seem like he had quite a dysfunctional relationship with his father. Yes. Fatherlessness is tied to a lot of bad outcomes. Mm -hmm. Part of the question becomes, and that's for boys and girls, part of the question becomes why, what's yes. that dynamic? But what what I find interesting in life, if if it's all predetermined and you either are just born a good person and you're going to be fine or you're born a sociopath and nothing sure. that happens to you is going to make any difference, legitimately close my company, quit because the yes. whole point- What's the point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. For me, literally, yeah. it's called impact theory because I really believe that there are a set of ideas that you can give to people. And if they deploy those ideas, it will make their life better. And so- all I am trying to do is actually articulate these ideas. Now they get extremely complicated. You and I were talking before we started rolling. For me, this has really gone in three phases. And yeah. this is kind of how I want to walk through this today. So phase number one for me was the inner code. So I needed to build a belief system. And that was the beginning of my show was just that. I was just trying to help people cobble together what I called mindset. If yep. you get the right mindset, which I now probably refer to as frame of reference. Mm -hmm. So you build a frame of reference intentionally. Most people do it completely on accident, yeah. but I would want them to take control of that process. So you're building a frame of reference from beliefs and values. What is, what do I choose to believe is, and then what ought to be. Yeah. Then once you have that, you go into phase two, which is deploying it in your immediate life. So I'm going to deploy it uh, in my relationships, in my career, in my personal finances. I'm sure a lot of the things, because honestly, I came to stoicism, not by reading stoicism, but by going, what works? Yeah, sure. And so you end up and then you hear it for the first time. You're like, whoa, yeah. like this is exactly the kind of thing that I've been steering myself towards. And then phase three becomes what I'll 
shorthand to the reality distortion field portion of your life. You get to the point where, okay, I've, I've built the right lens through which to view the world and myself. I've deployed it in my immediate region. And now I want to see how much I can really push this out into the world. Now, originally I would have thought of it as um, creating the world that you want, but as the modern world ratchets up and throws more temptations, more ease at people, I find that a lot of what I think about is knowing what to resist, what not to do, what to turn away from. So walk me through what, what is that inner code that somebody who's aiming at the, the I'm going to call the, the ease of Tate, right? Yeah. Get rich quick, sure. uh, fast and flashy, not necessarily about long-term relationships. And then comparing to somebody like Marcus Aurelius, that's really about self-denial, anchoring, not giving into power. I, I remember I, I, I understand that position very well because I wasn't, it wasn't that long ago that I was there. I remember I was 19 years old. Someone had recommended that I read Marcus Aurelius's meditations. I was sitting in my college apartment. It arrived in the mail. I went and I got it and I sat down and I read it. And here you have the thoughts of the most powerful man in the world sort of explaining like his code, how a person should be, what a person should do, what greatness was, what goodness was, what virtue was. And I remember being struck so much by the this sense that like no one had ever talked to me this way before. My dad hadn't talked to me about this way. I hadn't really heard that in church or in school or on TV. You know, there there is this sense, I think, that like kids will just figure it out. People will just figure it out. Or that, you know, uh, it's obvious and it's not obvious. People need guidance. They need structure. They need advice. Like it's it's absurd that you would just expect them to figure this stuff out by trial and error because you can end up going down these blind alleys. It could take you years to find out that, hey, this trait you picked up, this way of living isn't actually the right one or isn't working for you. It's not as meaningful as you think it was. So what so struck me about the Stoics was that it answered this same question that I think people are feeling like the Andrew Tates or random YouTubers or TikTokers are are answering, which is like, how should I be? Like, what is the good life? Like, what do I need to do in the world to get ahead? Or how do I prevent myself from being taken advantage of or being weak or, or failing, right? Like, how do I deal with this hole that I have inside me? And I think it's a shame that we don't think of philosophy as a way to address those existential questions, because that's fundamentally what philosophy was from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Today, we think of philosophers as like somebody who works in the philosophy department at Harvard, or we think of some unpronounceable German name. But, you know, Socrates is walking around trying to answer the questions about knowledge and wisdom and insight and goodness. Uh, Diogenes, you know, famously walks around with his lantern and he's, he says, show me a good man. He's looking for, for, for that kind of person. The founding of Stoicism, Zeno is this successful young merchant. He inherits the family business, suffers a shipwreck. He washes up on, in, on shore in Athens, has, having lost everything. And he walks into this bookstore and the bookseller is reading the works of Socrates, right? One of the dialogues of Socrates. And he says, 
she walks up to the bookseller and he goes, where can I find a man like that? And the, and, and the bookseller points to this, this uh, cynic philosopher named Crates, and that sets Zeno on this mission, right? He's lost everything. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. And philosophy is that light. It is that North Star. And so I want to really put a point on that for a second, because as I was researching for this episode, I took a whole bunch of sort of journal style notes on the idea of philosophy. Yeah. So I think that we all have a God-shaped hole in us. Yes. And it has been, I, I'm not even sure how to categorize what's happened to religion. Cause in some ways we're like becoming more religious, but in other ways it really does feel somewhat empty and it yes. feels like there's a huge fragmentation. And so there is no one galvanizing sense of who you ought to be and what you ought to become. And right, so, and religion is political now as opposed to a guide to living in the world, mm -hmm. which is what it was supposed to be, you know, uh, 2000 years ago, you think of the 10 commandments, right? It's like, do this, don't do this, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and philosophy and religion were intertwined, right? Aren't so, they one and the same? It's just course. one is backed up by a deity and one is not. I mean, I, what I, what I, I mean this more literally, like, uh, Paul, is known as Paul of Tarsus. St. Paul is, was known before he becomes St. Paul as Paul of Tarsus. And Tarsus is the center of Stoic philosophy. It leaves Athens and it goes to Tarsus. And he studies Stoic philosophy, right? And, and uh, Christianity absorbs a bunch of the ideas mm. from Stoic philosophy, which I think, because I, I lost the thread a little bit, but like you said, what is the code, right? What is the code for living that philosophy teaches us? Well, so we're, we're back with Zeno. He's been on the shipwreck. The reason that I wanted to really drill that point home is, so I started this by saying, my heart bleeds for the people that feel lost and inadequate. Yeah. And why does my heart bleed for them? Because I've been there. I yeah. know intimately what that's like. Um, for me, I found Taoism mm -hmm. and then business forced me into something probably more like stoicism. But you, when you begin to create a category of thought in your mind about how things ought to be, how you ought to be, and you start steering towards that, then you can create meaning and purpose in your life. Yes. And so now all of a sudden, um, and I mean, look, this is a straight uh, quote from the Stoics, you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react. Yes. And so that's what's so fascinating about that moment is you've got this guy that had everything, loses it in a shipwreck, and whether it's apocryphal or not, like he's, I imagine yes. him dripping wet as he yes. walks into the bookstore, yeah. you know, and is like, how do I reconceptualize of my life now? It's the moment in Fight Club when his apartment gets blown up and he loses everything. And he's having to look at life with new eyes for the first time. And Zeno would, would say later, he, he would joke, he says, you know, I, I lose everything. He says, uh, I made a great fortune when I suffered a shipwreck because he lost everything financially. He lost everything as far as his identity goes, his work, his, his sort of family's legacy. And what he finds is philosophy, he finds this code of living. And Zeno is the first of the Stoic philosophers to articulate the four virtues which Stoicism is built around. Courage, self-discipline, justice, and wisdom, which also any Christian would recognize as the cardinal virtues. Mm. So Stoicism and Christianity share the same 
underlying operating system, if you will. One says that God gave it to us, and maybe the Stoics would say it's from the gods, or they would say it's from you know our ruling reason, our rational sense. I, I, I think it doesn't really matter. What matters is that those are four traits, four bedrock values that you can build a great and a good life around. Courage, self-discipline, justice, and wisdom. Every situation, good or bad in life, every moment, big or small, one or all of those virtues is appropriate, is demanded, right? Everything the Stoics would say is an opportunity to practice one of those virtues. So, you know, famously, uh, when Marcus Aurelius is talking about how the obstacle is the way, he's not saying that, hey, this shipwreck is awesome. He's saying that this shipwreck is an opportunity to practice one or more of the Stoic virtues. This betrayal by your business partner is an opportunity to practice uh one or more of these four Stoic virtues, right? This uh, loss of a family member, this horrible war you're in the middle of, right? Also, this incredible success. You've just become the emperor of Rome. Courage, self-discipline, justice, wisdom, all of that and more is demanded of you. And so, like, the Stoicism isn't a list of commandments, do this, don't do that, but it is these sort of four bedrock values which you're supposed to build your life and your decisions and your individual actions around and towards. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. If you've got a lot of great ideas inside of you that could literally change the world, but you're keeping them locked away out of doubt or fear of failure, please listen up. Within you is a unique blend of ideas, dreams, and passions that no one else possesses, and it's time to take action on them and put them out into the world with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it simple and straightforward to create a website, engage with your audience, and sell your ideas with their all-in-one website platform. Easily customize Squarespace templates so your website stands out and makes an impact. And get insights into your website and email performance with built-in analytics so you can be constantly improving your site, sales, and strategies to reach your goals. And I hope those goals are aggressive. I'm telling you guys, you can take action today, not next week or next month or next quarter, today, and get your ideas out there with Squarespace. That's how you get into the physics of progress and get better. So head over right now to squarespace.com slash impact for a free 14-day trial and 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, that's squarespace.com slash impact. Please do not die with these ideas inside of you. Get out there, put them to the test. Go to squarespace.com slash impact. Whenever somebody asks me my tips for scaling a business, I always tell them focus on efficiency because if you don't, you're going to waste a lot of time and money spinning your wheels instead of making smart choices that will lead you to actually being able to grow. That's why I recommend you check out Shopify, which has everything you need to efficiently grow your business and take it to the next level. 
Every time I talk about Shopify, I'm so jealous that you guys have this all-in-one ready solution at your fingertips. It is so helpful. Shopify is a global commerce platform that makes it easy to sell online and in person at any and every stage of your business. Literally, wherever, whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered, just like the millions of businesses that rely on them every day. And Shopify's award-winning customer support is there to help you every step of the way. Plus, you get access to Shopify Magic, the AI-powered tool that will save you so much time and give you a huge leg up in growing your business. And with Shopify's super-efficient checkout process, which performs 36% better than competitors, you are primed for more sales just by using Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to Shopify dot com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash impact the thing that i find um so i don't believe in god but i so relate to the idea of that that sense of there is a hole in me and i need something to fill it and for me I think all of this, whether it's religion, whether it's philosophy, what it's trying to get at is evolution has planted these drivers, algorithms in your mind, sure. and there's just no escaping them. Yeah. And the reason there's no escaping them is they are the things that you have to do in order to survive long enough to have kids that have kids. Yeah. And so the the epitaph on my tombstone ought to read, you're having a biological experience. And what I want people to understand is- Death is a biological experience. 100%. Yeah. And whether uh, God gave us evolution in the body, whether this is all a simulation, none of it matters. Sure. What what it boils down to is the the way that you interface with life, the way we interface with each other, the, most importantly, the way we interface with ourselves yeah. is pre-programmed. Like you, you are going to feel some kind of way. You are going to be prone to love. You are going to be sure. prone to jealousy. You are going to be prone to uh, envy, joy, all of it. Like yeah. the, the human experience, as varied as it is, is so narrow when you compare us to other animals and, and what they go through. And once people realize that and you realize, okay, there, there is no way to escape certain pressures. Yeah. And so now whatever philosophy that you have ought to align with the things that are going to make you, I would say, fulfilled. Yes. So I'll round it to human flourishing, right? Yep. So to me, uh, something you've said and the note that I took even before we started is you need a North Star. There yeah. needs to be something that you're aiming at. And so, you know, I hold up Andrew Tate and Marcus Aurelius as two potential North Stars, as a bundle of ways of approaching the world of deciding what to value, of deciding what to believe, but which one of those you choose, one is going to be more aligned with the, the algorithms that you already have running in your mind and thusly are going to lead you to a life of more fulfillment. It's probably worth me defining what I mean by fulfillment. So to me, fulfillment is the only neurochemical state that is pleasant and can survive something like grief. Because joy or happiness does not survive grief. You cannot be joyful and grieving at the same time. But I think, curious to see if you agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think that you can be fulfilled and grieving at the same time. So I think fulfillment has a recipe. And that recipe is you must work really hard. 
Like that nature is going to ensure that you work really hard and that that is pleasurable and that you have a sense of dis-ease if you don't, because otherwise you're going to die in an evolutionary context. So you must work really hard to gain a set of skills that you enjoy for whatever reason that allow you to serve not only yourself, but the group. Yeah. And so that recipe to me is everything, the, whether it's stoic, whether it's Taoism, whether it's Christianity, Islam, whatever, it's the, the one that's going to win is going to be the one that most aligns you with the things that make you feel grounded. Like you have meaning and purpose. You feel secure and worthwhile. All the things that I lament for people that feel lost and inadequate. Well, it's interesting how timeless this discussion we're having is. I mean, Marcus would have recognized it himself, right? Um, in meditations, <clears throat> Marcus Aurelius talks quite a bit about the other emperors who come before him, right? This is an elite club he's in. Some are more famous than others. But, you know, he talks a lot about Alexander the Great, right? Who was sort of the historical model for manliness and greatness and success and ambition is the greatest conqueror that ever lived, you know, one of the great military minds. How far before Aurelius was he? Alexander the Great dies not long before Zeno makes his way to Athens. So it's a long time, and we're talking 500 years or Whoa. so. It, it, it's interesting how we, 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 sent, we tend to think like the mm. ancient world is so compressed. Marcus Aurelius quotes poets in meditations that were further away from his time than Shakespeare is from ours. Whoa. So this goes back, this is a long tradition. And, and the debates about greatness uh, and ambition and power, it's there. You know, the Xerxes, the Persian king who wanted to conquer the world, Alexander the Great who does conquer the world. You know, Alexander the Great, he, he is this great, brilliant conqueror. And, you know, he makes it to the end of the earth and his men finally rebel. Like, we want to go home. We've been doing this for, you know, 20 years. And he says, what are you going to, he's like, are you going to go home and let it be said that you left Alexander the Great alone to finish conquering? And they were like, yeah. (laughs) And and there's some argument that his men killed him. Um, But Marcus Aurelius tries to talk to himself in meditation. He says, you can't compare yourself against this guy. He goes, He's like, it's important that you remember that Alexander the Great and his mule driver both died and they're both buried in the same earth, right? That death is this great equalizer, that you don't get to take these accomplishments with you. And so to be insatiable in life is really a kind of an emptiness, kind of a torture that that doesn't pay off the way that you think it does, right? And, and so... In the ancient world, they were constantly looking at these figures. And there's this famous exchange I mentioned Diogenes earlier. Diogenes is this great philosopher, sort of a predecessor of the Stoics. And he meets Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's a big fan. He's a, he's a, a student of philosophy himself. And, uh, you know, he, he comes across, uh, Alexander, Alexander comes across Diogenes, who's, you know, like laying by the side of the road, just sunning himself. And Alexander the Great sort of walks over him and he says, um, Hi, I am Alexander the Great. You know, what can I do for you? Thinking that, you know, he can bestow favors on this man and impress him. 
And, and Diogenes looks at him and he says, you can stop blocking my son. And the idea, the, the contrast, the reason the ancients would tell this story was, was to say that actually Diogenes is greater than Alexander the Great because Diogenes is self-sufficient. Diogenes has reduced his needs to zero. Diogenes doesn't need to prove anything to anyone. Um, and he had, he had sort of taken a different path in life. And I think there's probably a middle ground between these two that we want to embody. But um, you know Stephen Pressfield, right? Yeah. Uh, Stephen Pressfield uh, writes a, a great novel about Alexander the Great called uh, uh, The Virtues of War, I think. And there's a scene, a fictional scene between Alexander and Diogenes. And um, he sort of renders another one of their meetings. And I think it illustrates this tension, you know, Alexander the Great goes to Diogenes and says, I have conquered the world. What have you ever done? And Diogenes says, I have conquered the need to conquer the world, right? And so I think it's it's great to, to be driven to try to do things, but the Stoics would say, are those things driving you or are you driving them, right? Are What are you a slave to, right? who's actually in control of your life. And so I think oftentimes the people that we hold up as heroes or that we admire, if you actually get up close with them and you see that they're not as free as you think they are, they're not as powerful as you think they are, uh, they're a slave to something or someone, even if it's just like their overscheduled calendar. And so, you know, what's beautiful about meditations is you have this immensely powerful man trying to get to the root of what it actually means to be powerful. And I think he settles on the idea of being in command of yourself is actually a rarer thing than being in command of an army or an empire or a, you know, a, a, a great legacy or, a, you know, whatever, whatever one is after in life. Mm. Okay. So this idea of being a slave to the things that you're into. That's one of the things that I worry about a lot with the modern world. So yeah. you have uh, porn beginning to skew people. Sure. The idea that you could see more uh, attractive naked women in a single session than most men would have seen in their entire lives sure. uh, is pretty crazy. OnlyFans, which is a, a whole thing. I don't even know how to conceptualize that. That's when I had my head down and I was just working for you know, whatever, yeah. two decades, I, I look up and OnlyFans is the thing uh, that I don't necessarily, I haven't fully grappled with what that means. Um, drugs, uh, just food. Like there are so many things. I mean, what, you can get on a plane for $200 and travel basically anywhere you want, right? Mm -hmm. At any time. Like the, it's wonderful how accessible and uh, real, real like technology and capitalism has made things. But it also makes it hard to be self-contained, to be self-sufficient, to be in control of your life and not controlled by the endless urges and temptations and distractions and pleasures that are out there. Are and, the pleasures bad? Well, the Stokes would say that pleasure isn't bad per se, but they would ask, you know, how do you feel the morning after, right? Mm -hmm. They would ask uh what what regrets come from it right what negative consequences come from it um musonius rufus is one of the great stoics he's the teacher of epictetus he says you know when you work hard on something it's painful 
but the pain passes quickly and the virtue or the accomplishment remains. But he says, when you do something for pleasure, the pleasure passes quickly, but the shame remains. And so when I think about the things that people do, whether it's drugs or drinking or sexual stuff or, or just any of the pleasures that we chase, you know, it's fun in the moment, it's rewarding in the moment, but the costs come later and, and you can't separate those costs. You can't, you can't go, I had an awesome time drinking last night without integrating the morning hangover into that cost benefit analysis. But that's kind of the problem that we do, right? It's like you're eating whatever you want, you're not exercising because it's hard. Well, you don't see the consequences of that until you look in the mirror six months from now, right? And, and vice versa, when you decide to work out and to eat clean and to push yourself um, and to be disciplined, you know, you don't see the benefits of that until later. And and our inability to deal with that, I think, is a big part of why we're not the people we want to be or the people that we can be. I have a thesis. Yeah. Many people need to be chased by a lion in, you know, obviously as sure. a metaphor in order to, uh, have their life focused, take on meaning because then it, you, you have a thing to deal with. You yeah. have a thing that provides that structure. Yeah. And so when I look at the modern landscape, the thing that I really worry about is that there is no, like you can, in a modern context, you can live in your parents' basement until you're 35 and sure. there's really no major consequence for that. Right. And what do you think about that? So like, what do you make of something like OnlyFans? Where when, you know, I've been married for 21 years, I will often give relationship advice or have relationship guests on the show. And one of the comments you will see in the thread is one person will be like, oh, I think you should listen to Tom's advice. He's been married for 21 years. Yeah. And then somebody else would be like, yeah, he got married 21 years ago. There was no social media. Sure. Uh, there was no swiping right. Like one you'll see a lot is women, women <laughs> would settle back then. So I was like, thanks guys. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. You know, and. Like, what do you think about that? What What is the thing that has broken that has left men spending inordinate amounts of money yeah. on a woman they're never going to meet, right. who almost certainly is, uh, you're not actually talking to them. Yeah. You're talking to like probably a guy yeah. that's running their account yeah. all while, and here's where my brain broke, all while you could go get free porn. So this isn't just about masturbating, like yeah. that there's free stuff that you could do, you don't have to pay for. What the fuck? Like what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I don't think one thing broke. I think a lot of things broke, right? And so- What are those things? Well, I mean, first off, yeah, the the uh, an unlimited amount of high definition pornography is an incredible temptation to any lonely person, right? I get porn far more than I get OnlyFans. I mean, at a certain point, watching pornography is lonely and unrewarding because human beings desire and need connection and relationships. But if you have been left behind, like we, we talk about people who have been left behind like workers, right? You're a factory worker and now uh, that, that job can be done cheaper in China or it requires way more education than you have, you're left behind. But I think a lot of people are left behind when all of a sudden 
the dating market is so much more efficient, right? Where um, the competition is so much more uh, severe, right? Where people don't have to settle, like you're saying, because they have access to unlimited fish in the sea. And so this means if you don't have your life together, if you're you know, not taking care of yourself, if you don't have the emotional wherewithal and skills, like it's, it's always been hard to be a person and to find your people, right? It, I, by that, I mean friends and I mean potential spouse or life partner. It's always been hard. But then, you know, what we ask of people today is so much greater. We demand emotional awareness. Like I, I have young kids. The emotional awareness and the, uh, the load that I'm supposed to carry and the level of involvement I'm supposed to have in their lives is enormously bigger than my father had and incomprehensibly bigger one to two generations back, right? And then you think about the technological prowess that a person has to have. You think about um, how expensive things, like it's just hard to be a person. And so people are left behind. And so if suddenly you can fool yourself into thinking that this beautiful adult actress or sex worker is into you, that illusion is going to be more comfortable than facing the hard reality. Have you ever watched the, the MTV show Catfish? No. You know what catfishing yeah, is, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm very familiar with the concept. It's, it's, it's actually a really revealing show um, about- Are they intentionally catfishing people? No, no. The show is is people who think they're being catfished, and then they come and help them investigate to see whether they are or not. And I think it's actually a really revealing look into what it it's like to be one of these kinds of people in the world, because- these kind of incels? What are we talking about? Incels is a strong word, but somebody who is struggling, like struggling to find real people in real life, mm -hmm. right? And invariably, the person has fallen for someone that is not just out of their league, but but obviously out of their league to everyone but them, right? It's like, and, and so cognitive dissonance is a powerful force. And so when this male or female model randomly slides into your DMs on social media and falls for you, an unemployed person working in your parents, you know, living in your parents' basement, and they're really successful, but they don't have a phone that works. So that's why you can't FaceTime. Like they're not seeing what's obviously there because to see what is there would mean despair, right? Mm. To see that they have been wasting their life or that the world is unfair or unjust or, you know, much, you know, more difficult than they would like it to be. That's a hard, that's a hard truth to face. And I think it's easier to turn to illusions like falling in love with some, you know, random person who's tricking you and ultimately going to take money from you. And, and, you know, a lot of what's happening on adult websites or, or OnlyFans is just a, a slightly more ruthless version of that same thing. They're, they're creating a parasocial relationship with someone um, where you feel like it's a two-way street and it's fundamentally a one-way street and uh, you would rather live in those delusions than go to the gym go back to school, 
go to therapy, you know, deal with the unfair or awful hand that life dealt you. But it, even if it is unfair, even if it is, is unjust, it doesn't change the fact that that's what you were dealt. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure out what you're going to do with that. What would the Stoics say to an incel? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to think about what that is because I think it's it's such a complicated. It's psychological and it's economic and it's you know the sort of radicalization of the internet. But I I do think the Stoics would say like, look, uh, all the things that you don't like about the world, all the things you don't like about yourself. Uh, you know, being mad at other people about them, you know, resenting them, uh, lamenting them, it's not going to make it any better for you. And so how do you focus on what you control here, on what you can do here? And I, I, I do think, you know, at the core of Stoicism, although it has this reputation for being sort of resigned, the core of Stoicism is this strong sense of agency that you don't control a lot of what's happened before or in the future, but you control who you are right now, what you do in this moment. And the decision to to be a responsible adult, Joan Didion famously said, you know, the decision to take responsibility for yourself and your own life is the source from which all self-respect springs. Facts. And- Facts. uh, Totally. And and the, the decision to go, this isn't my fault, but it's my problem, this sucks, but I don't want to live a sucky, shitty life. So I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to blame other people for the fact that I am undesired, that I am unhappy, that I am unsuccessful. I'm going to do something about that. That is the first choice. That is the number one thing that is up mm. to you. Let's say you're Quasimodo. Yeah. I don't know the hunchback. I actually don't know the story, so I don't know what the punchline in the movie yeah. is. But... uh because the the black pill community, I've I've not engaged with much. I I know very little about it. But when I think about these things, um, <clears throat> if I'm Quasimodo and like it really is out of the cards for me, like yeah. I I am broken in a way that nobody is ever going to find attractive. Um, I feel like look, that's really brutal, and I would never want that to be true. But at some point, you either say, okay, that part of my life is dead. And I'm going to have to go find something somewhere else. Um, or it's going to drive you mad. Like I couldn't let that become the core of my identity. There's no doubt that that would be a part of it. You can't get away from that. You don't want to pretend that it isn't what it is. But at the same time, like I, when, when I think about, again, this all comes back to frame of reference for me. What do you believe is true about the world and how ought the world be? Yeah. And I would say the, Okay, what is in that moment? I'm not going to find a traditional relationship where physical attraction is the the first um, thing that's going to lead me down that path. But the world ought to be such that people fill that need for love and being loved with something, with some kind of contribution. Like you need to go do something. Dude, go work at an animal shelter. It's not romance, yeah. but it it is being loved and it is companionship. Like I, that's where my mind goes. Like you have to find an outlet for that. Otherwise, you end up in despair, man. Yeah. And you know, when I think about people getting to the point where they believe they can never be happy again and suicide is the only option, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Like I'm not here to say that there aren't major problems, but I am here to say, knowing what I know about how the mind works, you still can point your mind at something that will give you that sense of fulfillment. That, that recipe that I was talking about, you, you can get to that point, but it does require you to force that North star upon yourself. I mean, first off, I would say you're not Quasimodo. Like you're almost certainly not, right? Like uh, so much of what I think people are down about themselves when you when you look at people who are in true despair they've written themselves up there's there's ironically a kind of ego in it right it's this sense like imposter syndrome right imposter syndrome at the root of it is incorrect in the sense that it presumes anyone is thinking about you at all right nobody is thinking about you um but there is this sense, I think, when you are down, when things are not working, when you're unhappy, that no one has ever felt the way that you've ever felt. No one has ever had it as hard as you have it. Uh, and that your situation is unique. And it's not. There's a great uh, James Baldwin quote. He says, you know, you think your suffering and your pain is so special and unique. And then you read, right? And then you realize you you are opened up to a world in which people have had it so much worse than you, right? Um, have been dealt incredible hands of adversity and suffering and disfigurement and loss and pain. And those people got out of bed every morning and tried and worked on themselves. Um, and even the people that you are jealous of, that you think have it so good, are often dealing with secret pain and baggage and loss. And so the decision to go, hey, I'm going to stop making this so much about me. I'm going to stop making this so much on what has happened or what I am worried is going to continue happening. And I'm just going to focus on what I can do here. And I, I love your idea. You go work in an animal shelter. You you get a job. You uh, you meet friends. Like you, you stop trying to get this one thing so bad. And you just focus on things that are much more attainable and easy. And you you find in life that momentum is an incredible thing. And that oftentimes we despair of some destination, some far off change or transformation, because we don't see how we're going to get there, when really we should be focused on like what the most immediate, attainable, realistic next thing is. You know, if you're 200 pounds overweight, imagining yourself, you know, ripped and yoked is probably inconceivable. But like you could lose five pounds, you could lose 10 pounds, or you could get up and go for a walk. Um, you know, you 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 haven't uh, been touched by a member of the opposite sex in however long. Well, like, you can still say hi to someone in line. You know what I mean? Like the, you you have to start so much smaller than you think. And and the Stoics talk about this. They they talk about how like no one can stop you from doing that. They can stop you from some far off outcome, but they can't stop you from doing that immediate next right thing. And it accumulates. Zeno, who we can imagine Zeno, he loses everything, right? It seems utterly hopeless that the idea that he would become this world-changing, world-famous philosopher. In his own life, he's sought after by kings and, you know, rebuilds his life and his fortune and his relationships. That was inconceivable to him at that moment when he's penniless and broke. Um, but he says later, he says, well-being is realized by small steps 
but it is no small thing. And if we, if we can understand that these small steps, these little things that everyone talks about that that are very well established, you know, just basic best practices of life, they add up in a big way and they create something that is big and transformative. What are the small steps of well-being? I just mean, you know, like some of them are cliches, but it's like, you know, wake up early, go to bed early, eat well, you know, like I try to do something hard every day, like physically hard every day. Um, Why? Because I like the challenge of it. And more importantly, I like being a person who has a has a track record of doing hard things that I don't want to do. The Stoics talk about, they say, you know, we treat the body rigorously so that it's not disobedient to the mind. I want to cultivate the practice of I'm a person who pushes through hard stuff. I'm a person who decides what I'm going to do and do it, right? And I wasn't always that way. No one is actually born that way. It's a it's a culmination of doing it, of building the habit, building the practice, which becomes a ritual, which becomes an identity, which becomes a fact, right? Like um, those basic practices, like you could get it off any random Instagram account, any diet book, you know, any self-improvement. This is not rocket science, but it is hard work. And it's the work like of a lifetime, you know, waking up early three days in a row, that's not going to magically make you who you are, who you want to be. But the decision to wake up early, focus on what you eat, you know, to challenge yourself, to put yourself out there, to do the thing you're afraid to do. These are, you know, habits that compound and they, they, you know, they, they shape you as you are shaping them. Yeah, this is why I want people to understand they're having a biological experience. So I want to remove all the sort of hoity-toity-ness of why one ought to do that. Mm -hmm. The reality is there is shit in your brain that is messing with you and yeah. you are going to feel a profound sense of disease if you don't do hard things. Yes. Like the reason you should do hard things is not because it makes you a better person. It is because there is a... a a subroutine running in your brain that is saying you're a piece of shit because you don't do hard things. Now, I wish that that thing wasn't there. Your life would be much easier if you weren't being chased by a lion that you could still be all right. But the fact is that you it will just niggle at you because that is what evolution has had to program into us to make sure that back when you were gonna get potentially eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, that you still went out and braved it time and time again to move forward to make a better life. Disease is a great word that you're using there. Ennui would be another one. You know, there is this sense, it's not just that you you dislike yourself because you're not doing hard things. But you also have an anxiety or an insecurity because you know things could get worse. You know things could happen to you at any moment. And because you haven't tested yourself, because you're not actually sure if you're strong, you're worried, right? You're worried about what tomorrow could bring. Seneca famously would practice poverty. He was very wealthy, born to a wealthy family, was successful, was powerful. And yet he would try to spend like one day a month. He would like wear his worst clothes. He would, he would, he would, you know, walk the streets. He would, you know, survive on bread and water. And his point, he said, the the purpose of this practice was to be able to look at like abject poverty and go, this is what you feared, right? Like he he could go through life taking risks because he wasn't concerned about his ability to handle 
a reversal of fortune, right? And so when you do hard things, whether it's running or, uh, you know, getting up on stage or, you know, lifting heavy rocks, like whatever it is, what you're cultivating is the, the uh, kind of resilience and a kind of confidence. Like I have a cold plunge, right? Um, and there's supposedly a bunch of health benefits to having this thing, right? I'm what sure temperature you, do you set yours at? 39. Oh, that's cold. <laughs> it is cold. It is cold. It's on bars down to like 50, 52. And that shit hurts. It's awful. At 52, it hurts. 39 is like a whole nother level of suffering. It is an unpleasant experience, right? But there's all you sorts make of- You me feel like a wuss over here. <laughs> there's all sorts of research that, you know, it helps your circulation and it helps your immune system and it helps your whatever, right? And You will feel different. And, and I trust, you know, that the research is- legitimate, but I actually don't give a shit, right? Like yeah, it's not it, the could, reason to it do could all be disproven tomorrow and I would still do it Facts. because the, the, the benefit is the sliding in and the unpleasantness for the first minute or two minutes mm -hmm. when you're like, this was a terrible mistake. This is deeply <laughs> unpleasant. This is not natural. I shouldn't be doing this. And I go, no, I decide. I decided before I got in how that I was going to do it and how long I was going to do it for. And that's what I'm cultivating. What do you do? Does your mind scramble when you hit the cold water? It does. Uh, I feel like a, a flurry. And then one of the exercises that I'm practicing is I want, if I'm going to do it for three minutes, it's not three minutes of gritting my teeth and just enduring something unpleasant, but I also want three minutes of presence. Mm. So like- D Define that for me. Like I have my, you know, it's got a Meaning little arm. I'm, I am, are you, I'm hyper aware that I'm sitting in the cold or are you trying to be like, cold is just the thing. I don't need to sort of be captured by it. Well, one of the core things I'm trying to do in that moment is not look at my phone, which is telling me how long I've been in it. Right. Right. Like I want to sit and just be for as long as I can, trying not to distract myself, trying not to count and to just actually be. So I try to I try to combine the cold or the plunge experience with a couple minutes of sort of present mindfulness of okay, just so i want to know more about what present mindfulness is for you so i'll i'll give you a, a description of what i'm doing yeah. in the cold tell me if there's anything right. like what you do so i hit the water and my brain it 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 is screaming danger yeah. it's actually telling me you're being injured get out right now mm -hmm. and so there's a almost a sense of electric confusion where I can't even tell what part of my body hurts anymore. It's it's just weird. Like I couldn't, it's almost like I'm blinded for a second because yeah. it's so confusing and it's so cold. And it's just like, oh, I just want to get out. And so my thing is how rapidly can I get to the point where I feel at ease? Yes. So I'm not tense. I'm completely relaxed. I'm not trying to get out of the water. In fact, this is, what's that guy's name? Something's Paradox. Who's Paradox? The Stockdale Paradox. Stockdale? Stockdale. Stockdale, yeah. yeah. Stockdale's Paradox. He said the people, uh, Vietnam uh, concentration camp, no, what do they call him? War camp, prison camp? Uh, prisoner of war. Prisoner of war. So he's a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And somebody asked him like, who struggles the most in a prisoner of war camp? And he said, oh, that's easy. The optimistic people, yeah. right? Cause they think I'm gonna be home by Christmas. I'm gonna yeah. be out in a month. Yeah. And then they're not. Yeah. And when he was drifting down in his parachute, he's like, okay, I'm gonna be here for years, like at least seven years. This yeah. is gonna suck. I'm almost certainly gonna be tortured. This is gonna be very painful. And in that, like, okay, I just completely accept what's happening. And you sort of relax into it. Mm -hmm. like. 
admittedly cold water is not a POW camp, yes. yeah. but it's that same thing of like, this is where I am and I'm going to force myself to be completely calm yeah. in the face of my lizard brain screaming at me to get out. Yes. It's, it's a minor attainable way of practicing or flexing the muscle that people have had to flex in real adversity and real difficulty, right? And so the sense, for instance, you know, when you get in the cold that it's going to be unpleasant and you're going to want it to be over quickly, but your mind is going to tell you that time is going faster than it is, right? So if, if I'm sitting there and then I glance over and I'm expecting it's to like be seven seconds, yeah, two and a half minutes uh, through, and it's actually been 23 seconds. You know, I'm going to be disappointed. I'm going to be crushed. And it's going to be harder. So it's mm. it's just the ability to to sort of you get in and like you said, your brain scrambles, and then you want to reassert control, reinsert sort of presence, and then for me, the next step is not letting my mind wander or drift into something like work or a grudge I'm nursing, or an anxiety I feel about some other thing, or the sense that uh, I need to finish this and then get in the shower, and then I need to get home to beat traffic, to do X, Y, or Z, right? And to just be, this is all I have to do for the next few minutes. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be unpleasant, but I'm not gonna die. I've done it before. I know I'm gonna come out of the other side refreshed. So I'm going to, just do what I have to do. And, and again, where do you that, put your locus of attention while you're doing that? Or is it on, like for me, I do it on the breath Yeah, and am I relaxed? It can be, it, it can be breath and sometimes like I'll cheat and I'll count, but not to record time or just like the, the, the counting of the in and outs mm. of the breath. Right. Um, what, and, and the reason I, I like this again, health benefits, ancillary, secondary, it's just bonus. But the metaphor of this is also the process of starting page one of a book that I'm writing or learning a new skill or moving to a new place or anything that you have to do in life. The practice of it's going to be hard. Uh, it's going to be unpleasant. I'm going to doubt myself. I'm going to have dark nights of the soul. But I'm a person who pushes myself to do hard things. I don't give up. I don't cut corners. I don't make excuses for myself. I push through and I'm proud of who I am on the other side of it. That's the meta skill. That's the metaphor that you're trying to build in your life and in your mind because it's the most transferable and beneficial thing there is. So I like the, in fact, I looked this up, um, the definition of stoic, the actual word, yeah. uh, did I put it down? Mm -hmm. It's the, the definition of stoic itself is, is the thing that you were saying earlier that people weren't going to like, nah, I'm A convinced I have it here. Pain did you look it up? There it is. Axel. Yeah. So, sorry, read that again. A person who can endure pain or hardship without showing their feelings or complaining. Yeah. So I love that. I like the idea of being in control of my emotions. Yeah. I don't want to, and, and people that have only know me online, they don't know whether what I'm about to say is true or not, but it is true. I don't stuff my emotions down. I yeah. process them. I think it's very important to process pain and um, insecurity, hurt, all of it. Grief. Uh, grief for sure. You have to process it. Um, 
when my dog died, as silly as that is, I was ruined for days. And, but at the same time, I want my emotions to have their place. Yes. And it is very important to me that I um, have a healthy distrust of my emotions. I don't just assume when I get in cold water that I need to leap back out. Yeah. I don't assume when I'm starting something new and I feel like an idiot that I need to stop and give up. Yeah. Um, I don't assume when I started this YouTube channel and we had to go around to the seven people in the company and say, hey, could you please subscribe? Because we only have four. There's seven of us and we only have four subscribers. Yeah. So The awkwardness of being bad or not visibly successful at a thing is a very underrated skill. Like I, people want to be a famous YouTuber or be a best-selling author. Like I'll, I'll hear people they they want to like hire me to console on some book project, and I and I go so show me some stuff that you have published, and they're like, well, I've never put they've never put a single thing out, right? And so they want that the, the outcome, but they they're totally paralyzed and intimidated by the process of being a nobody at that thing for a long period of time, which is what it takes, right? And that that ability to be like, I'm gonna start this channel, even though some people think it's weird, even though some people I went to high school with are gonna be talking about it amongst each other and making fun of me. Um, and to think, not only that, not only to do it because you think it will be successful in the future, and you're just you're just willing to put up with it. That, that is outcome dependent. I like it that you're doing it because you are interested in doing it. You want to get good at it, and you think it's important, right? And and that's that's a a very important skill because you can't get you can't get good at anything if you're not willing to first be bad at that thing. Right. And people aren't willing to be bad at that thing. And so they would rather be on their couch, a lonely incel, than to go strike out trying to meet people. Right. They would rather continue to be the thing that's making them miserable than to experience some new form of discomfort or misery that is trying, that is failing, that is getting rejected. And you have to be willing to do that. You have to have the courage and the discipline both of those things in concert with each other to be able to get better. What say you though, to people that don't want men to be stoic? Like that's, you know, we started with that, that that's really become part of the definition of toxic masculinity. Yeah. Whereas I would say man or woman, if you are the slave to your emotions, yeah. that's just as bad as being a slave to social media or pornography or whatever. It's it's just a, the idea that the Stoic is emotionless is to totally miss what the philosophy is. And I think there's a big difference between being emotionless and being less emotional, right? Would you say, is, is it less emotional? Because I will say it's about being in control of your emotions. Meaning if you have, uh, if you spark rage, which let me just tell you, running a company, there are times where someone will do something and anger wells up inside of me. Sure. Now- just because I'm feeling angry doesn't mean I'm going to act angry. Yes. And I don't think people have enough distrust of their emotions, like literal distrust that I shouldn't be angry right now. I shouldn't be hurt. I shouldn't be upset. I shouldn't be uh, wanting to cry if I really want to get under somebody's skin. So yeah, I think that you should be like, yeah, maybe this isn't a time to be weeping. 
if we can make the distinction between stuffing the emotion down and then processing it, I think we're in a great place, right? I think people, if you think stoicism is you don't feel it, you pretend it doesn't exist, you think it's weak to have it, um, then yeah, I would, I would agree, that's wrong. But if stoicism is the processing of the emotions, the questioning of the emotions, the talking through the emotions, the having the emotions for a brief period of time and then going, I'm done with that and I'm moving on, then I'm all for it, right? Like there, we don't have a lot of stories about Marcus Aurelius, right? Like not a lot of stories about who he was as a person, but we have three that involve him crying, three. So we've got to imagine that this is not an utterly emotionless person. Um, there's a moment early in his life where he loses uh, his favorite teacher, his teacher dies, and one of his stoic teachers goes to him and says, you gotta stop crying, like this isn't what men do. And Antoninus, his stepfather says, let the boy be human. He says, philosophy and empire don't take away personal feelings, right? So he's letting the kid have this emotion. We know of Marcus crying, uh, while he um, mourns the victims of the Antonine Plague. Millions of people die in this heinous tragedy. And then the other one in between these two, which I think is also really revealing, he supposedly cries when he learns he is going to become emperor. And Sad tears? He's, he's overwhelmed by the enormity of the responsibility that's about to be thrust upon him. And he doesn't know if he can do it. He, he was said to be crying at the thought of all the bad kings that had gone before him, which I think is important. Like, if you're like, I obviously have this, I'm the best, I excel at everything. To me, that's a person who is almost certainly going to fail because they're not taking it seriously. They're not intimidated by what should be an intimidating thing. Responsibility is difficult. Being responsible for people is a scary thing. But, you know, so he, he breaks down, he cries about it. And then that night he has this dream. He has this dream, he says later, that his shoulders were made of ivory. To me, what that means is, and what he said it meant, is that he was stronger than he thought he was. He was stronger than he knew. So he has this moment and then he works through it and then he wipes away the tears and he goes to work. Do you know what I mean? So to me, that's the essence of what the philosophy is. You know, he didn't cry and run away. He didn't cry and try to wiggle out of the job, right? He didn't suppress the, the tears and then go get mad at someone or, you know, indulge in pleasures or distractions. Like he was overwhelmed. He understood he was overwhelmed. He dealt with it. And then he got back to it. And so this idea that the Stoic, you know, would never cry, I think that's an important one that we talk about because like, it's funny, like we, we say like men shouldn't be emotional, but we are very indulgent of men's tempers, right? Like if you get so angry that you punch a wall, you have been overly, you've been utterly overwhelmed by your emotions, right? Um, we don't tend to categorize that as weak or as the same weakness as crying because your dog died. Mm. And I would argue, I just put my dog down on my 16 year old dog and I wept like a baby. Like uh, it, the, not just because of the grief, but the emotion, the, the, the responsibility of having to make mm. this decision for this helpless thing that was now lying there and was not gonna be alive anymore. It was a emotionally overwhelming experience. 
I didn't run from that experience. You know, I did what I what I had to do. And there was regrets and, you know, um, uh, mistakes, you know, caught up in it. Like there was a lot of emotions, right? And so I felt those emotions. Um, and then I moved on. I know I don't need to I don't need to have fewer of those experiences in my life, but I've never lost my temper and then been proud afterwards. Do you know what I mean? So it, it's it, it's funny that we tend to criticize. It's very gendered which emotions we we sort of criticize as emotional, mm. and then other emotions: jealousy, rage, you know, lust, etc we don't lump in the same negative category. But if I had to choose, I'd much rather someone, you know, feel sad than someone be an asshole because they're not in control of their temper. This, this is a very complex topic. So um, I, one, I agree with you wholeheartedly that I am just completely unafraid to cry if yeah. that is what the moment deserves. Now I'm not a big crier, so yeah. it's very rare unless it's a movie. I, I will be honest, like movies can really get me. Uh, but it, it's very rare in my real life that I cry. But sure. when something is traumatic like that, then of course. And and when I say I don't even have a mild compunction about crying, like I'm not weird about that, does yeah. not bother me in the slightest. But at the same time, I get why this has become gendered yeah. and I don't want this to get lost. And this is where someone like Andrew Tate becomes complex. Again, I, I want to take him as an abstraction prior to the, the trafficking stuff. But when he first came on my radar, I was like, here you have a guy, 10% of what he's saying is bang on. And nobody is talking about the need to be tough, the need to strengthen yourself, to be ambitious is okay, to be aggressive is okay. And 90% of what he said, I'm like, he's just going out of his way to say it in the worst conceivable way humanly possible. And it could just be that he's dark tetrad all day and he really is just a sociopath. But even if he's not, even if he's just playing a character, mm. um, it's still dumb. And I don't want people to get lost in that. But I also don't, like I was really pushing back on what I'll call the hyper-feminization of men. And I think that that's also problematic. And so when I look at, okay, well, how did we end up here with these gendered notions? I think there's an, again, you're having a biological experience. Yeah. So there's an evolutionary reason why, like, I don't know if this is the same in your house, but if somebody, like the number of times that our alarm has gone off in the middle of the night, my wife has actually fallen back asleep as I'm creeping around the house to see if somebody's really broken in or yeah. if it's a false alarm. And I like lock the door behind me and I'm like, you stay in here. I'm going to go do my thing. Sure. And that to me, like when you talk about how the world ought to be, that falls in my list of ought to be. Like, I think guys should be tough. I think that that a hundred percent is their responsibility. And part of that is meaning and purpose. Part of that is there, there is, I need a North star. I need to know. I mean, let's go back to the four virtues, courage, self-discipline, justice, wisdom, right? So I think regardless of sex, all four are bang on, but when it comes to physical danger or even just discomfort in my life, if if my wife and I, um, if there was gonna be hardship around food for one of us, yeah. for whatever reason, sure. one of you had to suffer and not the other, 
100 out of 100 times, I would want to be the one that suffers and not my wife. And it would really bother me if she stepped into the role to suffer on my behalf. Yeah, you know, I so I have a six-year-old, he's a boy, and I I feel like a lot of the traditional masculine stuff, it's just there, it's in the air, right? In the sense that I work hard, um, uh, he sees me working out, he sees that I'm ambitious, um, you know, he trains in, in combat sports, he does Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, the sort of, st- you know, stereotypes of what a man should or shouldn't be. But we, we were going through, he just switched schools, right? And um, I said, you know, like, hey, how are you feeling? Like, are, are you sad about not getting to see your old friends and your teacher anymore? And he was like, I'm fine. You know, like, I'm fine. Uh, and, and like, he may have been fine, but I wanted to. I wanted to make sure he knew it was okay to not be fine, mm. right? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not like I'm trying to make him sad about something, but I I was concerned that his impulse, maybe from me or from something else or some random th- stereotype or you know thing he saw on TV or YouTube video, that he had internalized somewhere that it wasn't okay for him to be sad or to miss these people or to not like what happened, right? So I I felt like, I, I mean, I watched it happen. The, the impulse that it was, he was fine, like he wasn't, it shouldn't have the emotion, that was there, but it, there needed to be the extra conversation about it's okay. Like if you feel sad, it's okay. And sometimes, you know, you, you watch this too, like the kid will fall and they'll hurt themselves and there's already at a very early age some sense that like uh, boys don't cry or cover it up or don't tell anyone. And I don't think that's a particularly healthy thing either. So I I, I just like the I just like the idea that you're trying to create a well-rounded person that has the full toolkit, the full experience, the full human experience. Um and and you know it is funny like one of the early stoics uh talked about how yes of course there's some things that men and women are different at but he said you know like you don't care he says you don't care what sex your hunting dog is or the gender of your horse you just care if it can catch the rabbit or run fast in the race and I think overall, when I think of Stoicism as a philosophy, I do think about it as something that's not masculine or feminine, but that it's something human. And I think there are, you know, there are men who need the courage to be more vulnerable, right, about their emotions, right, as opposed to cultivating more martial courage on the battlefield. Maybe they already have that. And they, what they're struggling with is the pain they feel or the grief they feel or the inadequacy they feel. And they're, they're afraid to tell someone about it. Just as conversely, there might be a woman who is, um, needs the self-discipline or the self-command to, you know, deal with, uh, an over, abundance of emotions right and what we're trying to get to is some, is a is 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 the sort of moderate or the apotheo the moderation or the the middle ground the golden mean of the best of both worlds to me that's what stoicism is about 
Very interesting. So let me ask you, um, I was playing soccer one day when I was a kid and the ball hit my thumb just right and broke it. Yeah. Cracked it right down the middle. And how should my father have responded? My dad was the coach of the team. Yeah. I'll tell you in a minute what he actually did, but what in that moment I come crying to the sidelines, I got hit. Yeah. My thumb hurts. Well, I, I remember I fell off a skateboard when I was in fourth grade and I hit my wrist. I landed on, on my left wrist really hard and I probably cried. I know I was in a lot of pain and I told my parents that it really hurt. And what my parents did in that moment was chastise me for going on a skateboard and then sort of not believe me that it hurt as much as it did. And they, mm. you know, they like to save going to a doctor. They asked their doctor friend if it looked broken and he said no. And, you know, a week later, I'm like, guys, like this really hurts. Like I need to go. And of course it was broken. Right. And, and one of the things I took from that was not, hey, you should be tough. You know, hey, what I took from that is like, my parents don't believe me, right? My parents uh, say they care a lot about me and they want nothing bad to happen to me. Mm. And then here I was in physical pain and they were thinking one of saving money or two of, um, you know, doubts, right? So I don't know what your dad should have done in exactly in that situation, but I think it's really easy as a parent, as a person to get, to, to not just focus on the individual instance in front of you, which is like, this kid says their thumb hurts, Let's just figure it out. And to think, well, if I make too big a deal out of it, they're going to turn into a X, Y, or Z, right? Like there's a lot of extrapolation that I think is harmful for parents. One of the things I think about with my kids is I try to think about most things as individual instances, right? Like my toddler is throwing a temper tantrum. They're probably throwing a temper tantrum, not because they suck, not because they're bad, not because I'm bad as a parent, but because like we forgot to eat earlier or they're coming down with something, right? Um, and I'm just going to deal with this instance in front of me instead of going, well, if I reward this bad behavior, then they're going to turn into a kid who does bad things and thinks they can get away, right? The extrapolation, I think, is so often the enemy of what is usually a pretty common sense, low stakes situation. So I'm guessing, because uh, I think it's been the historical norm, that your your dad probably uh, did not take it very seriously. Yeah. So it was walk it off. Yeah. Like go back in, keep playing. And the problem is that in that instance, what I walked away from it with was I told you so. Mm. And I told you it hurt. And I told you that you should take me out yes. of the game. But as I got older and got into business and realized, oh, I give up too early. As soon as something hurts, as soon as something is difficult, my sure. temptation is to turn and run. And so my journey of success has been one of getting tough. And so when I look back, I wish what my dad had done was take a more holistic approach to me as a kid and help me create a frame of reference around sure. pain and suffering so that when my thumb is broken, I know, hey, this isn't normal. Yeah. You need to take me out. But because I whined and cried about everything, yeah. they couldn't know. Like, because uh, I used to whine and cry just the same when the ball would hit my cold leg, which I grew up in Tacoma yeah. where it's like, 
in the winter, it's actually cold. And yeah. so when that ball hits your leg and it leaves the imprint of the soccer ball, like that shit really does sting, but not remove me from the game sting. And so what I didn't understand as a kid and feel like, you know, when we think about stoicism, when we think about how ought one be, how, what should you be aiming at? It's like, you need to understand that things are going to get hard. You are going to suffer. If you want to do something great, you're going to have to push through this. And by all means, by the way, if you don't want to, if at any time you don't want to play, don't, yeah. but just be honest about why you don't want to play. It, it hurts too much. You're not interested, whatever. Instead of like, oh, this is some unusual amount of pain and you should always move in the opposite direction of pain. That's something my wife and I talk a lot about. It's like, hey, that is an important lesson that has to be taught is this actually the most appropriate or the most suitable lesson or opportunity to teach that mm. lesson, right? Like um, when, when, you, um, when your kid wants to quit something, right? They're playing the piano and then they come home one day and they go, I hate playing the piano, I wanna quit. And you go, well, I gotta teach them that you can't be a quitter in life. But what you have to zoom out and go, wait, did I force them to play the piano? Was the piano ever one of their interests? Or is this something that I forced upon them and now they are asserting themselves to wanna to get out of something they don't wanna to do to put energy towards something they do wanna do, right? And so, you know, is this, an, is this actually an important opportunity or an appropriate setting to talk about whatever this sort of meta lesson or virtue or value that you're so concerned about. And again, I think about this with tantrums. It's like, yeah, of course, you can't just throw a fit anytime you know you don't like something. But is that what's actually happening here? Are they actually thinking that the world revolves around them and if they lie on the floor and scream, they'll get what they want? Or is this a four-year-old who is been overwhelmed by hunger or sickness or some other thing that they don't understand and they can't separate because they don't know what they're feeling uh, from like wanting this toy and the fact that their body feels like it's falling apart. Do you know what I mean? And, and realize- What do you actually do though? I try to just deal with the individual situation at in hand. In what way? Just like, you let them freak out. Like, let's say you're in a restaurant and they start melting down. Yeah. What? Why do we need to be in this restaurant? Do you know what I mean? Like, this is, we don't need to be here. We don't need to do this. We can go outside and we can talk about this. And if we go outside and talk about this, you're not going to be as overwhelmed or embarrassed about what's happening. I'm not going to be feeling the pressure of, I don't want to be the kind of parent that has a kid that does this. Like right. I think so often what, what really hurts parents is not what the kid is doing or not the reality of the situation, but their perception of how other people are thinking about them or their, um, their sense of what, whether they're a good parent or not. And that's totally unfair. That's all baggage that you're bringing to the situation, right? Like one of the, you know, nobody likes to be on a flight with a crying baby, right? But one of the things you realize as a parent is like, this isn't a reflection of me. You know what I mean? This is the fact that I have a baby and the baby is crying. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing anything. It's not a credit or a discredit to me. If they're not crying because they slept the whole flight, that's not a sign that I'm a superior parent. That's just the luck of that situation, right? And so when you stop caring so much about what other people any, think. anything to do with that? I mean, 
sometimes you do. I mean, you obviously chose to be on the plane or not, but like sometimes the baby's upset, sometimes they're not. If you want to finally take control of your health and stop struggling with a lack of focus, feeling sluggish, and just not being your best, then you need to fulfill all the nutritional needs your body has every single day. You can do that easily and simply with AG1. If you're a longtime listener, you might know I've been supporting AG1 for many years. That's because AG1 is a foundational nutritional supplement. And you guys know me, I do not normally eat supplements. AG1 is basically it. It is a supplement that truly supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. And what I like is that they're basically grounding up real vegetables. It is about as close to eating the real thing as you're going to get. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. AG1 supports your whole body with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food source nutrients in every serving to support optimal health of your brain, body, and gut. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Click the link in the show notes or just go to drinkag1.com slash impact. That's drinkag1, the number, dot com slash impact. Check it out. What's up, guys? If there's something going on with your body that you just can't quite figure out what it's coming from, I'm going to bet that the problem has something to do with your gut health. So what can you do to feel better? Well, everybody's body is different, and that's why our sponsor, Viome, uses an at-home gut intelligence test to analyze your microbiome. Then they provide you with a personalized pre- and probiotic formula that can help restore balance to your body. They also recommend what foods you should eat and which ones you shouldn't eat based on your test results. I've had the founder of Viome, Naveen Jain, on the show several times, and he always has incredible updates about the science linking your microbiome to the rest of your health. And as you guys know, with everything that Lisa went through, we know firsthand that your gut health, if you fix that, you're going to solve so many other problems in your life. Go to tryviome.com slash impact and use code impact to get 20% off your first three months and free shipping. All right, that's T-R-Y-V-I-O-M-E.com slash impact with the code impact for 20% off your first three months and free shipping. 